Hello, and welcome to the Tennis with an Accent podcast, where we talk about tennis by connecting the present of the sport with its storied past. Be it the nuanced unpacking of the individual stories, long-form interviews, or the detailed tour-level analysis, we have you covered. Today we're going to be talking about Carlitos Way. Uh, it's not the Brian De Palma film with Al Pacino and Sean Penn. It's uh, the Wimbledon final that uh, you know was played yesterday between Carlos Alcaraz and Novak Djokovic. And some say it's a generational shift. No baton has been passed because Djokovic is still you know there. In you know he, he almost won this title yesterday. So we are not you know talking about a generational shift, but this match has huge importance. Uh, for those who you know watch tennis as fans, as analysts, and helping me do the honors are uh, my partner in crime, Matt Semek, and our resident guest, or I don't even know, Andrew's like you know I would say president of tennis with an accent. So <laughs> let let let's kick kick this off because a lot, lot of all of us have a lot of thoughts, and this is a match you know that uh, I'm sure will have momentum going into the U.S. Open. So Matt, what is uh, Monday after this final? been like uh, for you? I know you've written a tennis with an accent. What are the emerging thoughts? Where do you want to drive this conversation in a three-way, you know, coffee with friends kind of an environment? Well, I think the immediate thing, and, you know, obviously we're going to dive into all the nuances of this match, or maybe not all, but like certainly most of them uh, with, with you and Andrew. And I think just the starting point, though, is we need to appreciate just how remarkable this was, right? Because this is like, uh, I mean, what what would be like an apt comparison? Like this would be like Serena Williams, circa nineteen ninety eight. You know, beating Steffi Graf in, in, in a Wimbledon final, uh, or this would be like, you know, Venus Williams in nineteen ninety seven. Uh, maybe you know, beating uh, beating Graf uh on clay uh at, at the French Open. I mean. It's not just that Alcaraz beat Djokovic, something that he did before in Madrid, but he beat him where Djokovic hadn't lost a match in 10 years. He had not lost a match on center court in 10 years. I mean, he lost to Sam Querrey in 2016, but we all know that Djokovic's body was pretty beaten up uh, at that period of time. Uh, Alcaraz, not, and not only did Alcaraz beat Djokovic on center court, Djokovic, a seven-time Wimbledon champion, going for the Grand Slam, adding to his records. But also, Alcaraz did this after getting steamrolled in the first first set, after being down love three in the second set tiebreak, after being down set point in the second set tiebreak, which was kind of a mini match point, mini championship point, if you will. Uh, he He won this after losing the fourth set and then being down uh, Love won 30-40 in the fifth set and Djokovic being in a winning position on that point before missing that swinging volley uh, from the middle of the court on the uh, on the right sideline. So you take you take together all those things. It's not that he won because Alcaraz has, you know, an, an enormously high ceiling. None of us would disagree with that. I don't think anyone listening to this podcast would disagree with that. We can all see just how much potential he is. But usually the law of the jungle in sports is that you have to lose and fail at a high level before you figure it out. Uh, whether it's, you know, like, I mean, Andrew, I know is uh, well-versed in uh, the, the Premier League and, and, and other 
global sports. Like he could tell you that how Arsenal, you know, had a really good team in the Premier League, but Man City had the experience, the heft, you know, the the familiarity with being there, and that took over late in the Premier League season. You know, usually the way things work is that the young club or the young athlete has to go through its paces a little for a few times before learning how to put together the full puzzle, every last piece. I mean, I'm familiar, Sakib, you are too, being in Boston with the NBA, and we know how the 80, 1980s went, that, you know, the Michael Jordan, he, before he won all the, those six titles, he had to lose to the Detroit Pistons. And before the Detroit Pistons won their NBA titles, they had to lose to the Boston Celtics. Like, normally, you have to get knocked down to the canvas, and you have to absorb a gut punch loss before you realize, oh, that's the missing piece I needed. Oh, that's what it takes to be a champion. And it's true that Alcaraz did gain a ton from the Roland Garros semifinal. And he and he obviously he very quickly learned the essential lessons from that match. But of course, that was Roland Garros and it wasn't grass. And it wasn't a major final, even though many people will say that was essentially the final. You know, it still was a semifinal, and it still had a different feel for that reason. Um, For Alcaraz to put all these pieces together and beat Djokovic in the context and manner he did, that's what's stunning. Because, you know, if Alcaraz just played great and everything clicked, like we'd say, oh, yeah, like this guy's a dazzling talent. But no, he actually got his face rubbed in the asphalt, or I should say lawn, uh, for the first set and then was, you know, on the ropes in the second. And then he comes back. Uh, I'm I'm reminded of and I'm going to pass this over to Andrew in in just a second here. But just finally, on, on my opening remarks, I'm reminded of the great golfer and golf architect Bobby Jones when he saw a very young Jack Nicklaus in the 1960s. And he saw Nicholas, this this little boy, this chubby little boy from Ohio, uh, just taking the golf world by storm. And Bobby Jones said, he plays a game with which I am not familiar. And and that that iconic sports quote certainly applies to Carlos uh, Alcaraz. So, Andrew, with that in mind, your initial uh, takeaways, perceptions and observations from what we saw on Sunday. Well, I think that Novak himself was asked in press after the the match to compare Alcaraz to uh, himself, Djokovic, to Federer, and to Nadal, the big three, as have been. And he said there was a bit of himself in there, particularly the, the, the backhand slide, the Spanish bull style. So he had he, he had bits of them, but he, he brought them together into a completely new package. And then Alcaraz himself, when he talked about it in press, said, um, you know, I want to be the first Carlos Alcaraz, which I which I think is right. And I think the the three of us who are on this conversation think that he's going to do great things in the future. Um, he's, he's, he's on his way to being an elite player. And I think one of the things that makes him really interesting is he, he's got this whole new style about him. And it's a, it's a term that I called crackle when I, I saw 
Federer and Nadal at Indian Wells and the way that the crowds flocked around them when they came off the practice courts and they were they were moving from the grounds to uh, the, the the locker rooms. You, you, you just couldn't move for the the people surrounding them. It's, it's just because of the way that they play the game. And one of the, the, the key points in the match, Matt's already alluded to a few of them, but was Love 15-5-4 in the final set where Alcaraz has, has missed on a drop shot. And then he plays a drop shot at Love 15. Djokovic tracks it down and Alcaraz lobs him for a winner to make it 15 all it's just a beautifully constructed point but something that was 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 pure carlos so i loved seeing that i think that there are throwbacks to um some famous matches in the past that we'll get into uh one that we've talked about among ourselves is the 2006 final between federer and nadal which was nadal's first time on grass and Federer, after the 2007 final, which Federer won as well as the 2006 final, said that, you know, Rafa was sort of enthusiastic and hit the ball really hard in 2006, but didn't really know what he was doing. And he was a different player in 2007. And that seemed to me to apply to the first set in Sunday's match that Alcaraz came out and was biffing the ball around, but didn't really know what he was doing. And then that changed as we went into the second set. So, you know, like, like you, Matt, I think there are resonances and then there are portents for the future. And let me throw it across to Sakib to get his first impressions. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, uh, some of us, uh, I, I, I've made a resolution lately uh, that I don't want to tweet too much during the match because with my eyesight taking a toll when I look at the phone and then back on the TV, uh, you know, I'm a diabetic, so uh, too much information. But yeah, I've noticed, uh, you know, sometimes if I'm going back and forth, I, you know, I don't enjoy the TV quality. So when the first set was in the book 6-1, I knew the great 80 final when Bjorn Borg had lost the first set 6-1 to McIndoe. He ended up winning the match. So I wanted to see how many other 6-1 sets were there if we use that as a baseline. Not many. There were a couple of bagels, Becker and Federer, but there were like few 6-1 sets. But both winners like McEnroe and Hewitt ended up winning the championship in 84 and 2002 respectively. So I was telling my sister, we were watching the match together, like as phenomenal a talent Alcaraz is, I think and expect he'll make a match of it. But 6-1 is just too hard a scoreboard deficit. And little did I know. But this also was in compensation, Andrew and Matt, to our conversations and DMs during the French Open when you were, and, you know, you and uh, Matt, uh, Mert were pretty firm that uh, uh, Novak is a favorite in Roland Garros. I think Matt was 50-50 and I was 50-48. I thought Alcaraz is going to win that match. And I learned my lesson. So not that the two have something to do with it, but I was firmly of the belief that Novak's going to, you know, win five in a row and he will add to his eighth Wimbledon. So what transpired was something we haven't seen on this court. He's he's played some formidable foes here in Roger Federer, you know, and uh, and Rafael Nadal. Uh, you know, he, he's he's gone through the best to win his seven titles on, you know, four occasions. And, you know, not to say like the other matches against Berrettini and Kyrgios, 
were, you know, are not formidable opponents. I just didn't see uh, the match coming to fruition like the way it did after the first set. And I'm guilty as charged. I don't want to say, yeah, if it was an enjoyable match, they both left a lot out there. And it was slim margins of a great match. Like, and we'll talk about it. Where does this rank in everybody's, you know, list of great matches? So I just couldn't get over the 6-1 part. I thought, you know, and the way Novak is. And and he came and dialed in. I was telling, who was I telling? Steve Flink. I was I had texted him. I said, look, even for the center match, uh, Djokovic forehand was a bit, you know, a bit missing against Rublev and Hercoc. But in center, he was just dialed in in that match. And that Steve said, oh, that's like, he has total respect of the package that Sinner brings. So that way, I think when I saw the first set, uh, I knew like this is going to be, you know, I knew we won't be talking about any other result, any other possibility, because that's how great Novak Djokovic has been in these matches. So I think uh, like Matt and you said, I think it, it was a commendable win, uh, a commendable performance you know, for a 20-year-old who's now what won two majors before his 21st birthday. I don't know who was the last man to do it. So, yeah, those are my, I was just stuck on the 6-1 thing. And that, I didn't tweet much throughout the match. But uh, incredible that we are talking about this kind of a result because we all know how tough Djokovic has been in these situations. And one so, thing, Sakib, I, I go back to uh, a match in my youth, which was Bjorn Borg against Jimmy Connors. Uh, and... I think it was something like a semi-final or a quarter-final at Wimbledon where uh, Connors won the first set 6-love and then he won the second set 6-4. And then Borg came back to win in five sets. So I, I, I never put even a first set or a, or a second set uh, in, in the bank as, as giving you the result of third, fourth, fifth set particularly when there are people who are clearly champions in, in the fray. Go ahead, Matt. Oh, well, just Andrew, how much, how much does, I mean, so Alcaraz is a major champion. Like he was a major champion, I should say, clarify, you know, when he stepped onto the court on Sunday, but you know, he, he did win the U S open when, with Djokovic not being there and you know, so like, obviously not disputing Alcaraz's empirical identity as a champion entering this match. But of course it was a champion on a much, much smaller scale than Djokovic uh, had. So how much do we assign to the fact that Alcaraz had previously won a major and how much that mattered for him? And also in terms of uh, how, how you saw this, because, you know, when we talked about this match during the match, uh, you know, I was convinced Djokovic was going to, you know, overtake Alcaraz in the fourth and fifth sets. And you were a little bit more neutral on that question. So maybe in terms of, uh, you know, unpacking our perceptions of this match and our evaluations for our listeners here at Tennis with an Accent, go into the thought process, Andrew, that made you think that, you know, this was actually an even match all the way through and and it, that you know get, seeding the advantage to Djokovic was perhaps premature or just o- over reliant on the past and it undersold uh, what Alcaraz brought to the table and and that inclination proved to be very accurate and on point on your part so i had said in public that I thought that Djokovic was an 80% favorite going in, that if they played the match a hundred times, 
Novak would win 80 times and Carlos would win 20 times at the start of the match. Uh, by the end of the fourth set, when we were you know, sharing thoughts on DMs, I, I had it at 50-50. It was, it was basically a straight coin flip at that stage. And the reason for that was the adaptations that Alcaraz had made. But also I, I was seeing Novak looking a bit like a 36-year-old. And it's harder for somebody older to consistently bring their best tennis really late in a tournament, really late in a match. And one of the notations that I have down to to put into this conversation is I think a 33-year-old or a 32-year-old Novak Djokovic would have won the match. If you'd have if you'd have rolled things forward through the the various different sets, or if you'd got to a score line of two sets all at the end of uh, four sets, would a thirty two year old Novak Djokovic have have won the match? Well, he did against Roger Federer. A thirty six year old Novak Djokovic is a bit of a different proposition, and one of the things that we saw in the match was Novak bounced off the turf several times and uh, he, he bounced his racket off a net post once and was, was shaking out his, his wrist from that. So the Novak Djokovic who started set five wasn't fresh as a daisy. So let me pose this to both of you because, you know, he won Queens, right? And uh, before that, he really didn't have much of a grass court resume. And uh, in my circles, in various DMs and WhatsApps, uh, the perception was, you know, it's Grasco tennis. He still is not anticipating his movement or footwork as he does profoundly on clay and hard court. So once he gets that, he has all the toolkit. His slice may not be world-class yet, but it's pretty good. So uh, in our DMs, when we were talking about this, uh, did you guys see this as a, you know, a tennis adjustment or did you both see this as a grass coat growth of, of a player, you know, who had, you know, an enormous talent, like Matt said, the ceiling is quite unlimited, but did you see him grow as a grass coat player or I don't know, it's a question, but, uh, or, or secondly, do you need to be a super grass coat player because the way grass plays these days, unlike it played, you know, when Sampras and, you know, Ivanisevic were playing. I think there, I think this is a really important conversation socket because one of the things I tweeted on Sunday was that, you know, Alcaraz has has displayed more patience than Iga Sviantek, if we're going to compare the two. Now, I didn't expressly say on grass, but I've spent the past fortnight mentioning at several points along the way, especially during the Benchich and then the Svitolina matches, that Sviantek, as the world number one, as an elite player, a superstar, should be happy to hit a few extra balls that any elite player, you know, if you have more game than your opponent, you should always relish the prospect of hitting a few extra balls. It shouldn't be seen as a burden. It shouldn't be seen as a chore. I mean, look at Novak Djokovic just as a comparison that, you know, if you want to just trade from the baseline all the time against Djokovic, that's a death wish, right? Like he's going to grind you down. And one of the things we see from Alcaraz is this constant variation. You know, and it's a lot. It does recall Federer in many ways, never giving the opponent the same ball, the same look 
repeatedly. There's always a little bit of variation. Maybe you're maybe you're doing the same thing, but you're doing it with a different spin. You're doing it with a different angle. You're doing it to a different target on the court. There's always something mixed in with Carlos Alcaraz. It's it's a it's a varied game, and he makes sure that the variety comes at the opponent in different ways. And so, if you're an elite player. You should relish the ability to use your full arsenal and that that's going to win out. And it's it's the underdog. It's the person who doesn't hold the cards, who, you know, needs to end the point more quickly, who needs to go for broke, who needs to redline all those related concepts. And so Sviantek was rushing for much of Wimbledon, certainly in the Bencic and Svitolina matches. She wasn't patient enough. And it does bring to mind the point that while grass is a first strike surface more than clay, more than uh, slow hard courts, it's not as though like you have to end the point right away. And Sviantek seemed to be in a mindset where like if she wasn't getting on top of the point right away, she felt uncomfortable. And Alcaraz, and I think that the matches against Jerry and Berrettini uh, really helped him out here. And I think this is another po- important point of the conversation. Those matches in the middle of the tournament gave him and Ferrero and the team so much information in terms of how to not only play against opponents, but to play against, you know, tough opponents on grass. And we really saw Alcaraz, to your question, Sakib, grow so much in terms of how to play on grass, how to use the full arsenal, how to mix aggression and patience. Um, and, and, you know, in, in the final, like he had, he was hitting a loopy topspin forehand. He was playing a clay court match for, for portions of this, but not all the time. Like he could go big. He could hit hard and flat when he needed to. And, and it does point to the reality that Alcaraz found a way to mix aggression uh, and patience a lot, but, it, it didn't happen on its own, or at least not entirely. Like he did have to solve some problems in his middle round matches at this tournament, but that's because he got a stiff challenge. And like, that's not something you can control, but like those, those challenges that Alcaraz received midway through the tournament, they paid off against Djokovic. If, if Alcaraz to just to draw one more comparison before I ask Andrew about this, if, if Alcaraz had sinners draw, and he was going against players ranked outside the top 75 in the first five rounds. And then he and then he went through Medvedev the way he did in the semis. I don't think he wins this match against Djokovic. I think getting the getting the information, uh, you know, we've talked, you know, Federer would say, like, I'm gathering information. Alcaraz gathered a lot of information during the first five, six rounds of the tournament. And that was an important piece in what he did on Sunday. So my thought about adapting to grass is is there's three things that I I put up there straight away. So one of them is movement. How you move on grass is different to how you move on hard courts and how you move on clay. The second is how the ball travels off the surface, particularly the way that you very often get lower bounces and how that affects your shot choice. And then the third, which we haven't talked much about yet, is the importance of the serve and how free points 
from aces or unreturned serves. Um, and sometimes you could even extend that to the sort of serve plus one play, how important those things are. So to my way of thinking, the Queen's experience and then the early rounds and presumably the training and the practice that they did helped Alcaraz to learn how to move on grass. Was he going to be as experienced as his opponent in the final? Certainly not. But you saw uh, a lot of players falling over, uh, slipping uh, on the grass, particularly in the, in, in the back patches. There wasn't a lot of that from Alcaraz. He did take one tumble that I saw in the final, but got up none the worse for wear. So I think he learned over the course of the 2023 grass season how to move on grass. I think another thing that he brings to the game uh, is a lot of variety. Uh, Matt has talked about giving people different shots. I think his slice is at 20 better than Nadal's was at the same stage of his career. I think Federer always had a, a, a very good one-handed slice, but Alcaraz has brought that into the game. He he likes drop shots, doesn't always uh, deploy them at the right time, but didn't stick the club in the bag and actually used it very well uh, at times in the later stages of the match. The thing that Alcaraz couldn't learn how to do in the space of one or two tournaments was be an elite server. And I thought that that was potentially going to cost him in the match. I think there were times where not being able to win free points was making it hard for him. And his ranking as a server is fairly low down in the ATP ranks. Uh, Djokovic is is ranked number three on the the ATP leaderboard on the, their site, and I thought that that was potentially going to make a difference. So, in terms of learning how to play on grass, you can learn how to move, you can learn how to slice, you can get the experience. What it can't teach you to do is how to serve. And and one more thing again, you both kind of. Uh answer the question because this question was posed to me in a WhatsApp group. And I really uh, struggle to tell, uh, you know, if the grass footwork, you know, like small steps or whatever. So that's why I pose this question to you because I, I just don't sometimes catch this. But what I replied was before the preview, I said, look, and now all these things look a bit silly, but again, it was a great match. I said with Federer retired and Nadal not playing, you know, you know, for a while and he's been hurt. There is really no prep for Djokovic. And this, again, going a bit counter against what Matt said, even though gathering information, and I totally agree with, with, with what Matt said. I thought, really, the Zverevs or the Medvedevs of the world really can't prepare you intensity-wise what Novak does, because Novaks keep asking, rinse, repeat, the toughest questions, hitting center of the code, deep returns, hitting placing, you know. Now, in this Wimbledon, he was placing some serves at 84 79, 90 miles an hour. And he was doing a one-two punch because the placement was so impeccable. So, and you keep asking this question over a five-set match, three to four hours, It believe me, you run out of answers. So, and and again, I'll give this back to you, Matt. That was my, you know, uh, that was my notion going into the match that there really isn't a matchup out there 
in a best of five format after we saw at the French Open that Alcaraz, you know, he has to take it from Djokovic because there's no one, you know, giving him that kind of a rhythm intensity wise. And of course, it looks like a kind of a silly conclusion. Uh, do you see some merit in that? I, I know you just, Matt, gave your opinion about how Jerry and all those matches compared him. Do you see, uh, you know, how lack of five set matches are there in this generation? And uh, there, there's, you know, not many big three caliber players are out there. It's a fascinating part of this discussion, and I'm interested in, in Andrew's uh, view of what I'm about to say next. And, you know, one one stat that emerged from this uh, Alcaraz win is that Alcaraz is the first uh, ATP player born after 1987 uh, to win two or more majors. <laughs> I mean, that, that's just crazy. Like, just the, the Death Valley sized gap that you have with you know no one from the 1990s winning at least two majors it reinforces the atp lost boys uh thesis but it but andrew i'm interested in your in your take about this next specific point and that is that you know when we talk about um how how well certain people uh, players prepare you for future matches or future rounds or how we uh, assess the quality of a player in a given year or a given era, maybe a given you know period of years. Like, you know, I'm of the opinion that like this is still late prime Djokovic, uh, late prime going from you know to the 2018 Wimbledon uh, semifinal against Nadal. That's basically when that late prime period began, and I think we're still in it. But some would say you know what, Djokovic doesn't deserve to be seen as a late prime player because he's beating these guys, you know, from the ATP Lost Boys generation uh, who just don't raise the bar, who don't raise the standard very much. And and if, if we had a higher standard of players from the younger generations, Djokovic wouldn't be winning uh, as much. And it's taken Alcaraz, this special new guy, you know, to show all these players born in the 1990s uh, how how far short they've fallen. You know, Alcaraz born in 2003. So, Andrew, I mean, it, how, do, how does the Lost Boys thesis, you know, on a broader general level fit in with your evaluation, not only of uh, how, how well Djokovic uh, is playing and, and how, like, how significant or seismic Sunday's moment is, but how how much do you think Alcaraz's achievement reflects on you know this lost generation of ATP players? Well, part of the 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 Lost Boys story is the round of sixteen matches and the round of and the quarterfinal matches and and then you get to the semifinals and and the the finals, but. It's how you get there as well as who you play in the final. Um, I remember back in 2007, uh, the Australian Open, uh, Federer, it was the one Grand Slam that he won without dropping a set. But in the round of 16, he played a a young up-and-coming player called Novak Djokovic, who gave him a hell of a fight. and. Later on in the 2009 plus period, 
Federer wasn't just losing to Nadal, he was losing to Berdic, he was losing to Songa, he was losing to Del Potro. Um, the, the next echelon of players below the big three uh, or the, the three players out of the big four, Nadal, Djokovic and Murray, were people who could take a match off Federer or if Federer came through that match, he was somewhat depleted in terms of how much reserves he had in the tank. And so by the time he got to the semifinals or the finals, it was tougher. So when you look at uh, players now, Djokovic is a huge step up, I think. If he's rested, if he's if he's fit, he's a huge step up from other players on the tour, particularly on grass. What we what we haven't seen is a group of about four or five elite or near elite players who have filled the gap after the players born in. 1985, 1986, 1987, that would challenge a Nadal, a Djokovic, or a Federer in the round of 16 quarterfinal, semifinal. Just focusing on the big three means that you miss the four to 10. And that's where the gap has been, in my view. It's fascinating. You said, you know, uh, with the loss per generation, those who don't know, Andrew has done, you know, uh, detailed analysis with data set of different generations, starting from generation, I think, Fed all the way to, what are we now, Generation Felix, Nick, uh, Andrew, right? That's the one. Felix is the rising generation, although there's Yun Cheng, who uh, that's 2004 through 2008. They They haven't made too much of a wave yet. Got it, yeah. So... Uh, check it out. Uh, you know, those, if there's a new listener who doesn't know of this. Uh, so Matt, you know, again, we, we are in this comparison mode where, you know, these great matches are compared with other great matches because that's been a clear feature, not a bug of the big three era, you know, along with Murray and Del Potro, Bavrinka, there have been many scene setters of the business weekend where, you know, we talk about these matches where two heavyweights go into it and then sparks fly and, you know, and we are all witnesses. So Wimbledon's been, you know, Wimbledon has seen its great five setters. So I was talking to Andrew before we started recording. Uh, I think 2014 remains outside of 2008. I think to me, that's the greatest final of the last 20 years, second greatest. So uh, I know you've written about that match a lot because that's where Djokovic 2.0 started. Uh, now, this is one rare match where Novak Djokovic in a long time is at a receiving end of the scoreboard. Normally, this is the treatment he's given out to his biggest rivals consistently. Uh, with the generational matchup, and I know, you know you're know you a writer who compares a lot of history, uh, leaving the recency bias away, is this one of the top three, top five Wimbledon finals you've seen, considering you know quality, what's at stake? How would you rate this one? I don't think it I don't think it exists in the top tier strictly in terms of quality, uh, because, you know, we certainly didn't see Djokovic at his best. We certainly didn't see Djokovic 
serving the way he can, like the, the extremely low ace count. And, and hey, Alcaraz is a superb returner, to, to, to be clear. But nevertheless, we did not see the imperious uh, ultra-clutch Djokovic serving, uh, which has really built uh, you know, the foundation of his, his latter-year empire. Again, it goes going back to the 2018 Wimbledon semifinal against Nadal. That's when the clutch Novak Djokovic serve, ushering him through you know, these later years of his career. That's when that clutch Djokovic serve really landed on the map, stayed on the map for a very long time. We didn't really see that serve anywhere close to its best. Um, and so it wasn't, this matchup wasn't, you know, like the meeting of the gods where, you know, you have two guys on this really high plane, this exalted level and just sustaining it all the way through. There were two six, one sets in this match. I know we had a 26 minute, uh, game, uh, midway through the third set. And we're going to talk about that, uh, uh, a little bit later on. Um, but like there were fluctuations in quality and, Really, I put this match on a similar level to the 2019 Wimbledon final because that was a hugely dramatic match. It was a hugely memorable match. It was a hugely significant match, but it was not a match where you had two guys playing their best at the same time for an extended period. And that really is the central marker of an elite quality match. And so this like this definitely would take a back seat. Uh, to 2014, 2008, uh, 1980, the the other re- you know the other Wimbledon finals that we would immediately acknowledge as uh, among the best ever. But in terms of significance, like and, and this is part of the evaluation of matches that people will they will be engrossed by the drama. They will they will intuitively and instinctively see the the importance of the result. And how it can reverberate through the pages of time. And they'll say, wow, that was one of the great matches ever. Well, no, it's not like great. A great match is, you know, rests on the central foundation of quality. And in terms of quality, this is not quite in the top tier. But in terms of significance, if we're just going to focus on that, well, like we, Carlos Alcaraz has certainly set the table, not only for his career, but also. You know, this match ruined Djokovic's Grand Slam plans. And in that sense, it had a significant effect on short-term tennis history. But the other thing this does, Djokovic now has something to really gun for over the next several years of his career. How do I figure out this kid? How do I bring him in line? Uh, Do I have the resources to beat Alcaraz if he is, you know, competing as well as he did and if the and if the mental side of his game is solid, because you know in Paris, in Paris, you know the, like Alcaraz played tennis on a comparable level with Djokovic in that semifinal through two sets, uh, but like he was just so stressed out, and the mind-body dualism that you need to be uh, great in tennis just collapsed. But here, Alcaraz was calm, he was relaxed, he didn't self-sabotage his body. So Djokovic now has, uh, you know, as he grows older, and Andrew alluded to that, uh, Djokovic now has this great puzzle, this great challenge that he gets to figure out. And it's just going to be fascinating to see uh, uh, how that all evolves. I I mean, Andrew, I know you have other thoughts on a a lot of different things, but one thing I wanted to circle back on was how you mentioned that 
you know, 36-year-old Novak Djokovic didn't quite win this match, whereas 32-year-old or 33-year-old Djokovic, you know, very likely wins this match. Um, how do we grapple with the notion that there was a 16-year age gap between these players? If, like, you know, if, if Djokovic was 36 and Alcaraz was 24, as opposed to 20, like, this wouldn't be nearly as, I don't know, maybe not surprising, but just certainly not as expected Um, or or it would be much more expected than, than what we saw with, you know, 20 year old Alcaraz getting this done. Um, But uh, like, do we, do we ask ourselves or do we say to ourselves, Andrew, after this match, wow, Djokovic couldn't make use of a 16 year uh, advantage in wisdom and accumulated experience or Andrew, should we be saying, wow, Djokovic did really well despite a 16-year deficit in terms of accumulated tread on the tires? W- which way do you go with that? Or is there kind of a middle ground uh, to you know, hold those two imbalances uh, in tension with each other? So I guess the, the first set showed uh, 36-year-old Novak with all the accumulated wisdom and experience uh, and saying, this is how it's done. Um, Alcaraz had a break point in the first game, didn't convert. Uh, Djokovic had break points in the second game, did convert. And and that set the, um, the tenor of the first set the second set, Alcaraz broke first, Djokovic broke back. And I think that we always have to be very careful about uh, reading too much into the outcomes of tennis matches, which are as finely balanced as this one was. Um, both players talked about the importance of the second set tiebreak. Uh, if Novak clears the net with the drop shot that he made at uh, three serving two, where he made his first unforced error, I think, since uh, 2006 in a tiebreak or something like that. <laughs> anyway, uh, they, they were pretty rare. And then he makes two more when Alcaraz is serving at five serving six and six all. There's a set point and on that point and on the point that followed Djokovic hits his second shot a backhand into the net and then he does it again and then on the following point he serves and volleys Alcaraz hits a stab backhand return down the line for a winner and and it's a set all and if if Djokovic takes the the second set uh, I'm not sure if it's a match point but it's it's a it's an incredibly uphill climb. But what Alcaraz had that that Djokovic didn't is at twenty years old. So long as he wasn't going to cramp up or or run directly into the crowd at speed, he was going to be able to play for eight sets. And Novak, by the time we got uh, towards the end of the fourth set into the fifth set, he wasn't going to have quite the same resilience that he would have had as, as, as a younger player. So 
um, you know, pure speed and uh, stamina advantage, Carlos, wisdom and the pressure of having been there before so many times, advantage Novak. And, and as Novak said when he was talking to um, the interviewer on court afterwards, I've won so many matches like these. Maybe this is even Stephen. Maybe this is this is where the coin lands the other way. Yeah, even in the press, Andrew, I think uh, uh, someone asked him about uh, this type of question, and the best question that someone asked him was, "Can we, you know, turn this into a rivalry?" And Djokovic laughed. He said, "Yeah, yeah, for my sake, hope so, because you know, he right. said the kid has, you know, uh, a lot of time left." Uh, and again, you know. Uh, Hindsight is a beautiful thing. Uh, anyone who knows tennis even decently knows Djokovic is going to be the central conversation, you know, for at least for the next few, you know, next few majors, if, you know, health permitting. He looks dialed in. He looks hungry. He looks motivated. And he doesn't look 36 in most of these matches. But now there enters a new question. Alcaraz tasting, you know, blood at hardcore and a grass major and clay was supposed to be the surface where he was supposed to make his inroads. What does this do, do to the field? Uh, is it become a two man race or, or this becomes like what Andrew's saying, the missing, uh, you know, does this become an inspiration for the Sissi passes of the world who are like knocking the right door, but the door is just not opening. Medvedev has already tasted a major, but now guess what? Alcaraz since Andy Murray or Wawrinka becomes the first guy with a dual major win. So how does that change the conversation and the landscape of men's game? I'm fascinated. I still think they're the two top dogs. But uh, Matt, I mean, how, how do you preview the U.S. Open if it starts tomorrow? Well, I think, uh, you know, one framework or construct that Andrew often likes to use is, would you take player X or the field? And I think what this match does, and I'm just going to pass it along to Andrew, but my opinion is this basically means it's it's Alcaraz and Djokovic versus the field. To me, that's how this resets uh, the ATP tour. And, and keep in mind, of course, that when, you know Alcaraz and Djokovic met in the semis uh, of Roland Garros because Medvedev totally unexpectedly won Rome, something no one figured was going to happen. And so Medvedev got the two seed and because tennis doesn't do, you know, automatic one versus four and one half, two versus three and the other, the way American sports bracketed tournaments do, well, that left the door open for one to play three, but we are going to have one versus two at the U.S. Open that Alcaraz and Djokovic are definitely going to be uh, in opposite halves. Uh, of the draw, and it's very likely that will continue uh, into Australia, where you know Alcaraz didn't play this year. So, to me, Andrew, this is Alcaraz and Djokovic versus the field. I, I'm very interested in what you have to say on that. Um, I think if you added their combined win probabilities as they go into New York, and and if you wanted to say, hey, I have. Novak at 35% to win the tournament and I have Carlos at uh, 25% to win the tournament add them together at 60 that's Carlos plus Novak uh, sorry yes Carlos plus Novak against the field sure but Novak against the field say 55% to win Wimbledon 
there's a difference between being a 55% favourite or, or Rafa in his pomp at Roland Garros as maybe a 75% or 80% favourite, and he won 14 times. You would put them in, I think, reasonably as one and two, but there's a lot of other players that that I think could be holding the trophy in a couple of months' time in New York. Uh, Medvedev can play on hard courts. Uh, Sinner, Tiafo, uh, you, you know, you you run your way down the the ranking list, and I'm I'm still looking at the next generation of players coming up. Holger Rune uh, made his quarterfinal spot against Carlos in this tournament. They played a pretty good match. I, the Alcaraz took in straight sets. I think that Runa was was starting to feel it physically in the third set. Fast forward it beyond 2023 into 2024, 2025. You know, I, I'm just really big on, on Runa. I don't know if 2023 is his year. Uh, but uh, if you ask me, are they, are they both favourites going in as the likeliest winners? Yes. If you said to me, we can pencil in a Djokovic against Alcaraz final at the US Open, I would say assuredly not. Sakiv, I need to get your uh, take on, on this next point because, you know, you are, among other things, a, a, a superb tennis historian. And, of course, you've also hosted uh, conversations with Steve Flink on previous uh, tennis with an accent podcast, including uh, Goran Ivanisevic in 2001. So, you know, folks, if you've been listening to the tennis with an accent podcast uh, and you missed the Sakib special with Steve Flink on Goran's run through the People's Monday, uh, finishing with the win over Patrick Rafter in 2001, you need to listen to that show. But, but anyway, Sakib, like you, so you're a historian, you talk to historians, you know, you're obviously you're a big uh, student of Boris Becker who was one of the younger Wimbledon champions of the open era. What did this Alcaraz win elicit inside you? Like when you, when you saw Alcaraz do this, um, you know, any callbacks to what Boris Becker did? And I know that, you know, Kevin Curran in that first 1985 Wimbledon final, that's a, that's a long distance away from Novak Djokovic, 23 time, major champion but nevertheless Becker certainly rates as a guy who was able to you know enter Wimbledon and really not be awed by the tournament certainly not to the extent that it hijacked his nerves or his preparation and of course you know Becker massive serve like that's a big difference with Alcaraz it's also a big difference in playing style between the 1980s uh, and today that, uh, you know, Alcaraz really, you know, if he had, if he played in the mid 1980s, he really would have been a fish out of water, uh, not being able to serve huge the way Boom Boom uh, was able to do. But nevertheless, I'm sure, Sakib, that uh, seeing someone so young and precocious uh, as Alcaraz is uh, winning this Wimbledon, I'm, I'm sure that like there were thoughts about, you know, the other great young champions of Wimbledon, Boris Becker being one of them. What what is what what was the larger 
thought process that flowed in and through you on Sunday in the aftermath of this match? Now, maybe even parts of the match itself created some callbacks, but I'm sure like in the two, three hours after this match, uh, there was a lot of reminiscing on your part uh, about what this match uh, said about past decades and past champions at the All England Club. Yeah, I think you, you know, you and I have done many podcasts and we've talked about, and this is a larger point, right? I'm trying to make uh, the missing generation that Andrew has, you know, so fondly called the Lost Boys. Uh, Alcaraz reminded me, you know, we always talk about where are the youngsters, right? And uh, and Becker was that guy. And to me, I'll throw a couple of the names who didn't have great careers, but in my tennis watching, they had like the Becker kind of a physique, like, you know, a boy in a man's body like Mark Filipousis gave me a lot of glimpses all the way from when he first burst on the screen. I think in 93, he beat, I think, Edberg or lost to Edberg in Australia. And then he never won Wimbledon, but they were like, he was like the next Becker. And then Marat Safin, you know, the way he dismantled Pete Sampras was again playing absolute brutal power tennis and also had some touch. And then fast forward, like, you know, we go through the big three era and all these, you know, great matches. We didn't have like a youngster who would look in the eye to a McEnroe or Lender like Becker did. Okay, I'm here to stay, you know. Uh, and, and I think he's such a nice guy and tennis is different. Alcaraz is not a trash talker, but, you know, the the belief uh, is is there. I mean, he oozes off confidence. Uh, he's probably more talented than Becker was, you know, as a teenager. And now at 20, he has two majors. Uh, and to answer your question, I think the couple of backhand lunges he made, I wanted to f- get that in the conversation. Those were very reminiscent of a Boris Becker lunge or a Pat Rafter lunge. Edberg might be a superior, more superior volleyer that I've seen at Wimbledon, but Becker and Rafter played this athletic brand of serve and volley. Where, and Rafter, again, was picturesque. Don't get me wrong, Becker, Rafter was a superior volleyer, but they had a physicality to their volleys, especially the backhand lunges. And Alcaraz had a couple of those. Djokovic nailed these backhand laser beam passes, and he just redirected with a lunge, and it became like a drop volley kind of a volley. So, yeah, yeah, there you go. I mean, there's like a lot of comparisons that come to mind. You know, he's, of course, not as tall as Becker and Philippoussis and the other guys, but he's just packs a punch. He hits the ball harder than anyone. And he's one guy, you know, who's having this, having us dare this conversation against the great Novak Djokovic, that he's going to beat him in France. Didn't happen. You know, anxiety and nerves got in the way. Then everybody resets. But this is Wimbledon center court. He hasn't lost here. So, yeah, I mean, there is, you know, against all odds kind of a thing. He's world number one coming into it. He's a great, great player with a, you know, incredible ceiling. But this was one thing to do it. And you're right. I think Boris Becker comparison is valid because that was an unthinkable what he did back in the day, even though Kevin Curran did the heavy lifting uh, by taking out Mac and Connors and Lendl lost to Lacan. So Becker did, didn't go through the murders, or as Andrew would say. But for a 17-year-old and 20th ranked player in the world, that was a hell of a run. But now, you know, what, 38 years later, this is just as incredible as it gets because honestly, grass doesn't play like grass. We've already covered that. And uh, Becker too, one Queens. And Johan Creek said to the press, you know, the famous words, if the kid can display the same serving ability, he's going to win Wimbledon. Everybody laughed at him. And by the way, I also spoke to Creek ages ago. There's an episode in somewhere. If there's someone who's interested, want to go and listen to it. But yeah, I think uh, I'll throw this back to you, Matt, because the inner game and the big moments, that's how the Boris Becker generation, you know, of audience 
was traded by BBC Dan Maskell, John Barrett. Becker was a master of love 40, 1540 recoveries. And then, you know, some scoreboard hipsters would say, you know, each point has its own merit. You know, you get to say a certain scoreboard in tennis. But do you do you think Alcaraz, besides being this great talent, you think the drop shots, uh, the timely drop shots and taking the risks, you think there is also like that factor, like, you know, in a Wimbledon final, you don't drop shot after missing a drop shot. And he did that against Novak Djokovic. What do you think of that? I mean, you know, we talk about the inner game. Is it just like, you know, boyhood exuberance or is it like, you know, I would not do this if I was 27 years old? Uh, how, do you, how do you rate that, that kind of a moment? Well, you know, it, it, there, there's something to be said for the idea that, you know, when you, when you make the right choice, you make the right drop shot, you know, you look like a genius. And when you miss, you look like a fool. You look like the village idiot. But something does have to be said for the fact uh, that Alcaraz did go to the drop shot. And Andrew mentioned this earlier, at the, you know, when he was serving for the championship. He goes to the drop shot lob combo one point right after missing a drop shot. And, you know, you could say it's recklessness, but really that does speak to fearlessness. And that really is where Alcaraz sets himself apart. Uh, You know, he does have more game than Sitsipas and Runa and Sinner and, you know, his other relative contemporaries on tour. But, you know, you players with more game don't necessarily win. I mean, you know, Casper Ruud's had a, you know, made three major finals uh, in the past uh, 12 months. He's made back-to-back finals at Roland Garros. I mean, really great accomplishment, but like he, he doesn't have more game than Stefano Tsitsipas. And I mean, when I talk about game, I'm talking about shots. I'm talking about ways to manipulate a ball like Philip Kohlschreiber, Cole Schreiber had a lot of game. So just if we're talking about that, you know, Rude wouldn't be number one in terms of a ranking of, you know, non-big three players with a lot of game. But he's steady and he's consistent and he doesn't give away matches the way, you know, a number of his contemporaries do. Um, But like with so with Alcaraz, you know, he has more game, but having more game, as we've seen, it doesn't guarantee you a ticket to, tro- to the trophy case and the victory stand where Alcaraz really does lift himself above his contemporaries is the inner game, that he really is fearless because, you know, most players going against Djokovic on Sunday in a major final, they get crunched 6-1 in the first set, they fall down love three in the second set tie break, they fall down a, a break point in the fifth set. How many of Alcaraz's contemporaries win that kind of match? Like we, we, we saw Alcaraz absorb not only those deficits that I just mentioned, but I also men- mentioned in my article that, you know, there were 334 points in this match and there were 46 games. So each game on average lasted over seven points. So that means each game on average was going past deuce. Alcaraz lost so many games that were 30-30, 40-40 in the first two, three sets of the match. Most players, when they go through that experience against Djokovic of not winning games, which were winnable, in which they had game point, that grinds down most players mentally. And it didn't for Alcaraz. And so that just says so much about his toughness and about how much he learned from that Roland Garros 
uh, semifinal. He needed just, you know, that one experience to give him, uh, you know, enough wisdom uh, for all of this. This leads me to Andrew and and something I wanted to get his uh, opinion on before we close down the show here. And that is that, you know, Andrew, uh, that 26-minute game in the middle of the third set. Now, it was a 6-1 set. So a lot of people will quite reasonably say, well, you know, that that game doesn't stand out in terms of affecting who won the match. And you can very reasonably say that because Alcaraz was up a break. Um, That was a Djokovic service game. So even if Djokovic holds there, Alcaraz is still up 3-2 with a break. And you could say he's still steering the ship. He's still still the pilot uh, in control of that third set. Maybe not the match, but certainly the third set. But, you know, when you have a war of wills like that, Andrew, winning that game had to have given Alcaraz something that he could file away for, you know, hey, if this gets laid into a fifth set, I know I can handle the moment. How how much weight and value um, would you assign to the fact that Alcaraz won that 26-minute game in terms of enabling him to get over that finish line in five sets and in four hours, 42 minutes? So one thing that, I remembered was basically Djokovic pretty much tanked the next two games. Um, he, he Alcaraz served out the consolidation game to go up five one, and some of the shots, the the returns he was hitting in the game that Novak served uh, down one five, <laughs> Novak wasn't moving for Novak wanted to get to the chair, uh, 4-1 down, a double break, um, just checking through the score sheet. Alcaraz actually saved break back points uh, serving at 3-1. So the, uh, oh no, would it be, it would be 2-1. Uh, but Djokovic had, had, had points to break that he didn't convert. Then there was the long game. Uh, Alcaraz was up 4-1. The set was over at that point. And one of the things that that I was thinking through at the time was, okay, we've seen this movie before because Novak was down two sets to love against Stefanos Tsitsipas, but I always thought that if he could get one break in the third set against Tsitsipas, the match completely reset. And as we know, Novak got that break and went on to win in five sets. Never, I thought, looking as if he was on on the precipice of losing the match when he played Tsitsipas. I wasn't surprised that he restored his energy in the fourth set and took the fourth set fairly comfortably. But as we've already said, by the time that we got to the fifth set, I thought either of these players can win it. And before I came into this conversation... And and my epitaph for the match is we've seen this movie before until we hadn't. So seeing Djokovic battle back, taking it to a fifth set and multi-time champion wins the crown again. We've seen the movie before, but this time, as you mentioned, Matt, uh, he missed uh, a swinging volley uh, with break point. 
And then in the next game, Alcaraz had his own break point, hit the passing shot. There were no more break points in the match. And the rest we know. Andrew, I want to follow up on uh, one other point before we close our show. And that is, you know, there was a lot of talk over the weekend about the 2006 Wimbledon final and how, you know, it was Nadal's first Wimbledon final, you know, his first test against Federer, not in their careers and not in a major final, um, but on, uh, but on grass, you know, it was, it was Nadal's first go round uh, against Federer on grass in a Wimbledon final. And there was a lot of talk about the comparison with this match and, you know, Djokovic, uh, playing against an ATP field without Nadal, without Federer, in a in a kind of like an inverted way. Though Djokovic is 36 and an, and an old man in tennis terms, uh, many people around the tennis community, and I count myself am- among that group, th- re- reflected on how like this early 2020s reality with Djokovic felt a lot like mid 2000s Federer, with the the one difference being that Nadal was able th- to stop. Federer at Roland Garros. Um, what, like, in terms of making salient comparisons between this match and the 2006 Wimbledon final, not so much in terms of how the match played out, though you could certainly offer comparisons there, Andrew, but in terms of the larger context, in terms of the backdrop, in terms of, you know, your sense of the stakes and, like, how, how much certain details do and don't carry over from one to the other? Like, what do you think it was a legitimate and real point of comparison? And what do you think is kind of a false comparison, given that, you know, for all the similarities, there are certainly some profound differences uh, between, you know, 2006 Federer and 2023 uh, Djokovic entering these matches against Spaniards uh, in a Wimbledon final? So the head-to-head between Alcaraz and Djokovic coming into this match was 1-1, I believe. So Carlos won in Madrid last year, and Novak won in Roland Garros this year in a match that was affected by um, Alcaraz's cramps. It, It finished a... Carlos didn't retire, uh, finished in four sets, but it was 1-1. And I don't think Novak entered into the match with anything to prove. I'm not sure that Alcaraz came in needing anything to prove. Um, You know, if he won, great. If he lost, then he would have other opportunities. Uh, Novak was potentially hitting the third leg of a calendar year Grand Slam. And he's done that before. Uh, So he'd been there before. But I think coming in uh, head-to-head, needing something to prove, wasn't really that sense of it in this match. When you go back to 2006, Federer walked onto court at Wimbledon, down 1-6 in the head-to-head against Nadal. He lost the first match they played uh, in Miami. Uh, he won the next year uh, in Miami in the in the final. But then in 2006, he'd already lost four times 
to Nadal in Dubai, in Monte Carlo, in Rome, and at Roland Garros, three times on clay, one time on a hard court. And and Wimbledon was his was his castle. Uh, now you could see it as potentially his last redoubt. Um, we didn't know then quite how long that their careers were going to be, but there was the the sense that if if Wimbledon fell. I think I remember the the world's worst tennis commentator, John McEnroe, which he was even back then in 2006, saying, well, look, if Nadal wins here, he's the true number one player in the world. Yes, Federer will be ranked number one player, but Nadal is the true number one player. So there was this sense that, 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 that Federer was, was defending the castle and the keep. We know that he did. Uh, the two players played later that year in the year-end championships in Shanghai. If if the listeners to this podcast haven't seen it, try and get hold of a DVD or, or, or watch on YouTube. It's, it's possibly the best two-set match I can remember seeing. The quality of that, that match in the year-end championships was insanely good. As we know, they went on to play again in 2007, 2008. The castle walls held in 2007, and then the citadel was breached in 2008. Uh, as you've already said, Matt, the conversation after this year's Wimbledon has been Djokovic saying, yeah, I'd love it to be a rivalry because that means potentially I play for many more years. And, and, and we'll see if that happens. After the uh, 2008 match, I remember Pete Bodo, uh, where we were there as, as commentators and uh, uh, commenters on, on Tennis World, Pete Bodo headed his uh, uh, match report, Spartan in a cardigan, and talked about what Federer would have to do in his declining years, you know, to see maybe he could get maybe one or two more Grand Slams. You know, as you know, Federer was still competing for Grand Slams more than 10 years later. So how long Djokovic has, what will happen with Alcaraz? I think we both see this match as as one match in their rivalry, but not, not an earth shifter. I think we covered a lot of ground here. Any parting thoughts, Matt, uh, before we wrap this up? I think I think we've covered it. So like I think that the way Andrew uh, ended it can be the end of the show. Right. Thank you both for doing this and looking forward to the hardcore swing. Thank you, Andrew. Excellent. For Andrew, thank you so much. This was great. Cheers, Matt. Cheers, Saki. Thank you.